Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Charbel Barakat, Chief Counsel for the Florida Region for D.R. Horton Incorporated and recent Jeopardy champion. And we're going to be discussing the law of Jeopardy. So, Charbel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm I'm so excited about this. As you know, I, I watched you on Jeopardy Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. It was, you know, elation to you were robbed, but it was it was a really exciting experience. Um, and the first friend of mine I've seen on the program, so that was really really exciting to me. Um, I was wondering if you could start by just telling listeners a little bit about about yourself. I mean, everyone knows you're a lawyer, but sort of maybe tell people a little bit about your your career path to this point. Sure. Yeah. I'm uh, originally from uh, originally from Miami, Florida, and then, you know, went uh, went to undergrad at, at Johns Hopkins. And, you know, that's uh, really where my trivia career started, I guess you could say. I was uh, on the, uh, believe it or not, there was a varsity quiz bowl team uh, that traveled, traveled to different schools <laughs> and uh-huh. uh, competed against the five uh, nerdiest people from, uh, from other schools in the Northeast. And it was, uh, we were as cool as we sound. Uh, <laughs> did but, you, uh, did you guys have like letter jackets or something or? I, I wish, I wish. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, mostly star Wars t-shirts, uh, things, <laughs> things along those lines. Yeah. Magic cards, maybe something, something mm. along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> but uh we did that you know that was that was probably my first immersion into it and actually that was kind of the first I'd heard a little bit uh or I I'd, I'd watched Jeopardy kind of growing up my whole life but I never really thought it was something you could aspire to but when I was at Hopkins I was preceded by a couple years uh at school by a guy named Brad Rudder now he uh Jeopardy folks will know uh, the name Brad Rudder he is he is the winningest uh Jeopardy contestant of all time uh, he's the only guy to have, to be undefeated against uh, Ken Jennings, who who was maybe the most famous Jeopardy champ, uh, even though uh-huh. uh, Rudder has beat him. And, and Rudder is also a Johns Hopkins dropout, so he he uh, attended for a couple years ahead of me and was on the team. And the the his legend sort of uh, preceded him in those days. And then he made a big run on the TV show and had a bunch of you know success there. And we also had a guy. Um, and I don't remember his name, but he he competed on the college tournament, and that was kind of when it first planted the the seed. And then you know, but it was kind of the back of my mind, and uh, went to uh, went to law school at NYU and uh, practiced there, uh, practiced in New York for about five years. And you know how that that the New York uh, law firm world goes; it's sort of all consuming. So, uh, other than a couple of half hearted attempts to audition for uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, kind of in the in the Regis era, the trivia dreams kind of went went on the side for a while until I moved back to Florida, uh, practicing uh, real estate law uh, first at a at a firm in uh, in Miami, and then in my current position uh, as an in house counsel. And uh, you know, probably the last ten years, off and on, uh, I applied three separate times, uh, and you know, third time third time was a charm. Awesome. Awesome. So what was that what was that selection process like? Like what did they expect? Do you have any sense of what they're looking for? Sort of what was your experience of of actually like trying to get on the show? 
Sure. So the process, it, it starts with a, uh, or at least for that period of time, it starts with an online exam. And they, they say about 90,000 90, people uh, take the exam. Uh, it's a 50-question exam. It's offered uh, three nights uh, out of the whole year. And of those, they select approximately three to 4,000 people uh, to do uh, in-person auditions somewhere around the country. It's like the, uh, it's the nerd equivalent of uh, American Idol. You know, and uh, th at that point, they're, you know, they're looking for you've got that's when you that's when you meet the uh, Jeopardy contestant coordinators. And uh, these are folks that they've all been with the show for about uh, basically as long as it's been running, which is 35 years or, or close to it. And they know exactly what they want. And they're looking for they, first they run you through another in-person exam, another 50 person, uh, 50 uh, question quiz. Uh, to make sure essentially the online exam wasn't a fluke. And then they run you through a, a, an interview and through a mock game. Uh, essentially, the, the best advice uh, you can get on uh, for that part of the, the portion of the interview is just try to be as interesting as possible. So, you know, there's mm. you, they want folks that are standing out a little bit on, on TV, I guess, TV-friendly folks. So as you might imagine, in the trivia world, there's, there's a lot of really, really, really smart trivia types Uh, that they would never, ever, ever want to put on on TV. So, <laughs> why is that? So, I mean, what 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 do you think? Do you have a sense of what they're looking for, or sort of what characteristics are? Well, it's, yeah. it's the it's the entertainment aspect of it. You know, they're they're clearly looking for uh, folks from around the country, uh, for you know, representative of the of the country as a whole, right? Folk, they want to see uh, uh, viewers want to see people that look like themselves. So it's Folks, all shapes and sizes, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, they seem to strive for, you know, relative uh, male-female balance, uh, all kinds of demographics, all kinds of different professions. They want to have folks uh, from all across the country. I was told uh, that I was the first person from the, uh, the Tampa area to appear on the show in about two and a half years. And, you know, considering that's uh, one of the top, I think, 20 or so media markets that that may have had something to do with why I was I was picked who knows but you know they're 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 looking for all kinds of different things but folks that are going to be uh, memorable I mean I think folks there's a Austin Rogers is probably the most memorable recent champion he's a uh, I think he won about 17 games he's a, a very well heavily bearded uh, bartender from Brooklyn who just seemed to know uh Everything. I mean, kind of the epitome of the know-it-all uh, uh, Brooklyn bartender, right? And uh -huh. was this a trivia kind of bar? A trivia bar in Brooklyn? You know, just kind of a. I I don't even think so. I mean, I'm sure there there might have been some kind of trivia night, but uh, yeah, I, I, he just tended bar. I don't think he even uh, ran a trivia game. I think he was just a really great bartender that happened to know a little bit of everything. So, so that third test you took, was that the first time that you went to one of these screening events or had you been to one previously? No, that was the, that was the third time I had one time I had gone to, uh, uh, Orlando. One time I'd gone to Tampa and then, uh, this is when I lived outside of Tampa. And then the last time uh, was in 2016, I actually went to Washington DC. So I, I hopped on a plane and maybe that, Maybe that got some attention. I'm not sure. I think I was one of the folks that traveled the, the farthest. They they saw the commitment. <laughs> that and the and the seersucker suit. I think the seersucker <laughs> suit. That the, always that always helps. That always helps. Clo yes. Always closes the deal. <laughs> so so how did you 
you know, once they accepted you to be on the show, did you like, did you like study or prepare in some way? And, and if so, do you think your kind of trivia background was helpful or harmful, like, or neither? Yeah. I mean, I think you, you have to come to it and they're, they're selecting for folks where there's already a sort of a base minimum of, of solid trivia knowledge. They want to make sure uh, that all the questions get answered, all the, you know, the, 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 all the money gets taken off the board. If they see big numbers out there, folks are entertained, the game's moving fast. So they, they're, they're selecting for, for, you know, strong trivia types, but at the same time, we all have gaps in our knowledge. And, you know, the good news is I, I, you know, Ken Jennings, I think famously said that Jeopardy knowledge is, uh, many, many, many miles wide, but about an inch deep. If you, you, so you, you really, you really got to focus on that narrow band of knowledge. And you know, the internet being what it is, I mean, there's there's a website called the J Archive. Shout out to the J Archive. They uh, they have all 35 years of uh, the Alex Trebek version of Jeopardy uh, archived. All the questions and answers, uh, all of the uh, the daily doubles and the amounts wagered. Uh, and, uh, it's an incredible, credible resource. And you can really, you can do a deep dive in there and figure out, well, you know, there's some, there's some very common subject matter that you can, that, that is a relatively, that comes up all, over and over and again, over and over again. And it's sort of a finite area. So I'm, I'm thinking of things like the U S presidents, state capitals, uh, world leaders, uh, Shakespeare, you really only need to have a, a good idea of his plays. The sonnets don't really come into it. And really even just the plays that, uh, you, you might think of opera. No, no, no Coriolanus or anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, it does come up. It does come up, but, but very rarely. I think that one's actually sort of a, uh, it's actually sort of a joke answer. It does come up from time to time, uh, for, as, as for uh, something along the lines of this is Shakespeare's worst play. It's something, you know, <laughs> So, oh, man. Uh, but you know, opera, I mean, those are the, those are the big ones that po- uh, so potent potables, that's sort of a classic, uh, jeopardy category that if it, you know, it, I've been known to enjoy a drink from time to time. So that, mm. you know, the know, knowing the ingredients of, uh, certain drinks that, that helps. Uh, but I did have to study that a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, so these are, and you know, of course, then you have the standard Jeopardy categories, the before and afters, and anagrams, which is my great weakness, even even though it ended up, even though it ended up coming up on on my first show. So, mm-hmm. so obviously, you know, you were cramming slash studying for the substance of the show, but what about like the actual gameplay and and the strategy? Was that something you were thinking about, like in preparation for the show? And and if so, sort of like, what was your approach to that? Sure. I mean, there's, there, there's some accepted sort of common uh, strategy that's, that's, uh, you know, like, like anything in 2018, this, the game has been broken down to a, a, a degree that, you know, would have been impossible uh, 10, 15 years earlier by that kind of internet hive mind, you know? So, there's a certain strategy when it comes to uh, daily doubles. I mean, there's, uh, I think, uh, one, uh, they call it the Forrest Bounce, which goes back to a, a guy named Chuck Forrest that played in the, in the 80s. And kind of his, his goal was clearly chasing after uh, the daily doubles, figuring that that's where the most value uh, could be had in the game. And then you have a guy named Roger Craig, who's another one of the Jeopardy greats, pioneered essentially the notion that 
you really should be going for the daily double, uh, the true daily double uh, at every mm. opportunity. So that's sort of the game, the game theory. Now, of course, that's easier, easier said than done when the spotlights are on. You know, I, I went in thinking if I landed on a, uh, on a daily double in round one, uh, the, the conventional wisdom is uh, that since only about one third of the dollar values are in the are in single jeopardy, you may as well uh, go for the true daily double in, in single jeopardy because you've got plenty of time and dollar amounts to to make it up in the end. But when when it, when I found myself in that position and the lights were on and and Trebek is uh is is eyeballing me, it was a little bit more difficult. So I, I uh, but <laughs> it paid that, off. It did. Well, it ultimately, it ultimately, you know, in, in the second round, I ultimately was able to pull the trigger and it worked out. But, uh, and then on the other side of it is buzzer, uh, the buzzer strategy. Um, what folks, I mean, the buzzer is basically what a lot of folks don't realize is you're not allowed to ring in uh, until uh, Trebek uh, finishes reading the question. So that's done for, uh, essentially for television purposes. From what I understand in the 60s version of the show uh, hosted by a guy named Art Fleming, you could actually ring in as soon as you knew the answer, which was more like a, a common pub trivia game but made for terrible television because they, they were not getting the questions out. They were just talking over each other the whole time. So you got to wait for Trebek to finish. And you also have to, but you also, but you then need to be able to beat everybody else to the punch at that point. So the timing, it's there's like a tenth of a second window where, where you can get in, and you know that 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 came and went for me. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I noticed that. I mean, so can you like push the button multiple times while he's talking or something, or like is there any? Yeah, you cannot. If you if you try to ring in while he's talking, you will be locked out for. Uh, I think about a quarter of a second, which in Jeopardy time is an eternity, and and you're going to basically be out on that uh, on that um, question. So you really need to you really need to hold your horses and time it and time it just right. Yeah, yeah. When I also noticed, maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed like when you were like ahead at certain points, you were like deliberately choosing lower value questions almost. Uh, yeah, no question about that. Uh, once, you know, in, in the first game, once I was pretty comfortably ahead and I had more than more than double the score of uh, my opponents at that point, I was essentially trying to trying to run out the clock. And so they were, you know, I was picking the low dollar value questions in an attempt to uh, essentially, I guess, take a knee and, and, and run out the clock. So. <laughs> okay. So I'm not totally, not totally out to lunch. So. You, you mentioned in in some of our emails some of the the history of game shows and sort of the background of Jeopardy, which was really interesting to me, and I thought was kind of a nice setup for thinking about like legal questions around game shows and Jeopardy in general. So, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about some of that and sort of like the the kind of legal history of American game shows, as it were. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I think uh, what a lot of folks. Uh, really, the the first sort of golden age of of TV uh, uh, game shows came about in the in the nineteen fifties, and then you know probably the most famous one was the sixty four thousand dollar question or or twenty one, uh, and the, the, you know the same same way that uh, uh, many years later, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or uh, or a Deal or No Deal or Jeopardy in its time took over uh, sort of the pub uh, public consciousness. These shows, uh, you remember, you're talking about the three three network era. So, uh, this was dominating the public conversation and, you know, uh, some, 
in in that comp in that race for for ratings that came at the time, some of the producers of those shows came to the conclusion, hey, wait a minute, uh, you know, we've got some really great uh, 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 trivia types that are extra successful on the show, but wouldn't it be better if we could find folks that were a little taller, a little blonder, a little more blue eyed, a little bit, you know, more handsome, more classically handsome and have them uh, win these shows and get all this press attention? Wouldn't that wouldn't that get a few more eyeballs? So uh, you got where they started uh, feeding uh, these folks uh the answers and you had uh you know the most famous case i think was ultimately immortalized in the movie uh, uh quiz show 1994 and uh this was ultimately um discovered I, you know essentially came out through the media uh, uh and the folks that had you know were on the wrong side of these rigged games uh, eventually started talking to the press and uh you know, simpler times, right? I mean, I think now we all think of reality TV where you just assume there's some level of uh, uh, manipulation going on behind the scenes. 1950s America, this, you know, blew the doors off the place to such an extent that Congress felt uh, compelled to act, which which stuns me, you know, and, and, and from, from the point of view of 2018 that, you know, that this you managed to get uh, an, an act of Congress to address this. And so they, um, but they did. And, uh, I, you know, uh, President Eisenhower essentially on his, on his way out the door signed um, uh, an, uh, several amendments to the Communications Act of 1934. And the, uh, mm-hmm. op- the operative uh, text of which essentially it's, it says, you know, it shall be unlawful for any person to, with intent to deceive the listening or viewing public uh, to, among other things, uh, supply to any contestant in a bona fide contest of intellectual knowledge or intellectual skill any special and secret assistance whereby the outcome of such contest will be in whole or in part prearranged or predetermined. So it is literally a a federal offense uh, to help someone <laughs> cheat on a, crazy. on a TV game show. Uh, now, yeah, I mean, it's like it's like the game show equivalent of payola plugola rules almost. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that's right. Now, now, to the best of my knowledge, I, I, I was, and, and I looked. I, I cannot find <laughs> any successful prosecutions or even indictments uh, under uh, under this uh, under this statute. Uh, you know, if, if any of your uh, listening public out there uh, is aware of any, I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Um, Charbel, I smell, I smell a larvae article here. <laughs> I tell you, it's uh, you know, but I think the the net effect of it was it it actually drove uh, quiz shows off of of television. I mean, the the public was was soured on them, and I, I think that's when um, uh, you know it were largely replaced by. Uh, I think variety shows, sort of the Ed Sullivan uh, uh, variety, and then ultimately on daytime TV uh, by uh, talk shows, sort of the Phil Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael era. But um, time passes, and uh, you have some creative folks uh, that say, well, you know, maybe it's time. Gosh, I really love those game shows, uh, those trivia games, and what can we do? And you had a a gentleman by the name of Merv Griffin. Of course, Merv Griffin – Best known as a, at least in his day, as a as a talk show host, although a very successful businessman, and he was uh, brainstorming game show ideas with his wife, uh, who was a big fan of the old quiz shows, and and he said, 
well, you know, honey, I, I love those shoes too. But you know, since the sixty-four thousand dollars question, uh, they won't let us. They won't let us do those trivia shows anymore because they suspect you've given the players the answers. Then, then she perks up and has a bright idea. Says, "Well, in that case, why don't you just give them the answers and make people come up with the questions?" And that's how Jeopardy was born. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so good. Such a great story, you know, Merv Griffin too, you know? Um, so from a lawyer's perspective, like what was it like actually going on the show? Like the whole kind of procedure and the kind of contractual relationships or releases and, and waivers, like what, what were their expectations and, and were there any surprises? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think going in, knowing the background of this, I kind of, uh, uh, kind of was keeping my eyes open, and, and it 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 was interesting to me to this day. You know, decades uh, after these game show scandals, the the efforts uh, that the game show that the Jeopardy producers took to uh, maintain uh, you know the appearance uh, or to avoid the appearance of impropriety, and the the lengths that they went through from the very early stages of the of the application process all the way through the taping day, all the way through, uh, airing. So, um, you know, for example, taking it back to the application process, one of the things, one of the things they ask you, uh, in the, that, that will get you bounced pretty quickly from the, from the process is, are you, are you, or a family member or even a, a friend, uh, an employee of Jeopardy, but also, uh, or it's, it's production companies, uh, but also the third-party compliance companies uh, that that work with Jeopardy, and I'll and I'll come back to those guys in, in a minute. Or, but also uh, you know Sony Picture Studios, CBS, uh, the Associated Press. For some reason that I'm not entirely clear on. That's that's one that's one of the ones they ask you about. Um, and if you, if any of those, you know, you check the box yes on any one of those, I think you know. Uh, at some point, I think if you can explain it as a maybe a pretty distant relationship, I know they actually just had a a, a, a Jeopardy champion who's a, a an AP reporter, for example. So I think that there's you know at some level uh, maybe that's not a a, 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 a total uh, block in your ability to play, but they're certainly cognizant of it uh, in the very very early uh, stages, right? And then uh, take that to uh, when you get the phone call, uh, that you're going to be on the show. And again, the, the, it, the phone call came and said, well, Hey, we, we've dusted off your application. You know, they, it was about two years after, uh, my previous, uh, my, my interview in that case. So it had been quite a long wait. And he says, well, you know, we, we wow. brushed a lot of dust off your application. We just want to make sure you're still not employed by any of these, uh, any of these entities. And so it's very much top of their, uh, top of their mind. Again, um, just because I, I think they want to make sure there's no appearance of any kind of uh, conflict. And then mm-hmm. you get to game day itself. And that's when it really, uh, well, I, I guess just before that, I guess I'll back up slightly. Uh, before you play, uh, they make you sign a fairly uh, lengthy, uh, what, uh, essentially uh, application, they call it application release and consent. Uh, there is, uh, again, many, it's about a 30 page document, lengthy references to avoiding the appearance of impropriety, uh, avoiding, uh, disparagement and conduct detrimental to the program, which, you know, I, I think in our cynical times, 
gosh, you say, well, I, you know, what are we, what are we talking about here? But you know, when you think about it, Jeopardy, it's one of the last great American institutions. You know, it's one of the last. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't want to oversell it, but I really do believe this. I mean, it's one of the top ten most popular uh, shows on uh, on TV, and I, and I think um, uh, a lot of that depends on folks, uh, the perception that it's an honest uh, and true. Uh, sort of merit-based uh, process. So I'm, I'm totally, yeah. totally sympathetic to, to that. Yeah. I mean, geez, like, I mean, as a Gen Xer, man, I mean, like Jeopardy was like, like iconic in my childhood, you know? Right. I mean, you think about it, it was, you know, referenced in the Simpsons, referenced in Cheers. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, Ma- Mama's family. I mean, you know, come on, Mama's family. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, so, and then, of course, very lengthy uh, indemnities and releases and an arbitration provision, uh, and essentially uh, also requiring that you um, uh, do not reveal any uh, results of the show or anything that really uh, uh, could give away any kind of spoiler-type information, whether it's uh, results of the game or questions from the game, uh, anything along those lines. And, of course, on the on the threat that, they'll withhold any uh any potential prize money. Ah, so that's like the that that's like the leverage then that you know they, that you won't get paid if you break any of the rules. Yeah. And what a lot of folks don't realize is everybody asked me, they said, well don't they must you know it's Jeopardy, they must put you up at the the Beverly Hilton or the Ritz uh while you're there. And the the, the truth is you actually have to pay your your way out there and they're they do give you a very nice uh, Sony corporate uh, discount at the Culver City uh, DoubleTree, uh, but uh, <laughs> which, is, which is great, right? Exactly. But you're paying your own way and uh, flying and, and hotel, and and with the guarantee that third place uh, gets a thousand dollars. So eventually you'll you'll recoup your uh, your your investment even in the third place, but only about four months after uh, the show airs. So that's the little bit of the hook that they that they put into it. Yeah, are you aware of anyone like violating the terms of any of these releases or or consent forms? You know, there's there's kind of whispers. I mean, I, I think a lot of these don't necessarily uh, come to the light of day. There, there's an interesting example. It's a, one of the sort of the mysteries. There was a uh, there was a champion, a recent champion, uh, who I think he won some, you know, impressive number of episodes, 10, 15, 20 episodes who did not, uh, typically when you're one of the more successful winners like that, they'll invite you back for, uh, like a tournament of champions or some kind of special tournament where it's the best of the best. And there was, uh, this was, uh, the battle of the decades. And it was, they had the, the great champs from the eighties, nineties and two thousands. And he was one of the ones sort of prominently missing from the two thousands. And they even made, they, they went so far as to reference it on the show itself. And it's, th- this is one of the few, um, uh, Jeopardy, uh, tournaments. It's actually on Netflix. So I encourage listeners to go check it out. It's actually reference made to it where they said, uh, you know, this champion didn't appear due to, uh, contractual differences. Uh, so uh-huh. no, that's a little bit of a mystery, a little bit of a mystery. So, Huh. It, was there anything about any of the kind of formal documentation that was like surprising to you or something you didn't expect to see when you started the process? Well, you know, I think what I was, uh, in terms of the documentation, uh, you know, I've seen enough, 
non-disclosure confidentiality agreements in my in my day to day that it's it's so sort of commonplace in 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 in, in you know commerce today that it, it really didn't surprise me. I think some of the other contestants maybe uh, did not expect uh, such a lengthy uh, legal uh, documentation. I think what what did surprise me uh, was uh, the lengths to which on the day uh, the day of uh, taping, the lengths to which they went to sequester uh, the uh, the contestants and sort of uh, avoid uh, potential for uh, either collusion or, or any kind of other cheating type behavior. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, a couple more questions from from my wife, Katrina, as we wrap up the interview, which because I, I thought they were actually really interesting, um, especially in relation to what you've said. One was she was wondering about the the kind of the meet and greet introduce yourself part of the show. Like how did how did that work? How did they decide what you were going to talk about? Like, did they get it right? Did they try to change anything? Like, do you have a sense of like what the what what the purpose of that part of the show is and how they think about sure. it? Sure, uh, you know that's something that they they actually ask you about. Uh, what they ask you for five interesting facts about yourself, going all the way back to the interview process. So they really expect you walking in the door uh, to have at least five solid, uh, interesting anecdotes or factoids about yourself, uh, uh, coming in the door. And that's, that's all part of the, that's part of how you sell yourself, uh, to Jeopardy. So by the time game day comes, you should hopefully have those little stories pretty well polished. And then you sit with, uh, uh, you sit with the contestant coordinators and, and I really, I got to give them a, a big shout out because these are the, these are the coolest people, uh, you know, some of the most high energy, uh, folks you met in your life, sort of the the ringleader, uh, sort of a well-known in Jeopardy circles. Her name is Maggie Speak, and she's kind of – imagine a combination of uh, uh, Janis Joplin and a fairy godmother and uh, uh, just operating <laughs> operating at high energy throughout. And so she's coaching you through the process and, and trying to coax a little bit of personality out of these out of these hardcore trivia types. And part of that is, all right, well, let's talk about – what you want to talk about uh, with Alex. And they're, they're going to give you, you know, you're really at that point boiling down the list uh, to three, uh, three topics. And, you know, mine, a question that I always get, what's, what's the deal with, what's the deal with my first name? What does Charbel mean? So I had that little bit of story on that. I also had, well, you know, the first time that I actually appeared on uh, uh, network television was in the front row of a WWE event in, uh, in uh, 2012, that's pro wrestling for those folks not not in on the lingo. <laughs> wow, wow! Who's in the match? Uh, it was, I mean, it, you know, I think the the main event that night was uh, was John Cena, now sort of well known through he's kind of the Hulk Hogan of the, of yeah. the 2010s, right? Uh, now kind of entering into Hollywood through all different angles, but at that time, so that was a big that was a big one. That was a big one. You got to see Cena uh, up close and personal from the front row. We actually. My wife and I put on our, uh, you know, basically formal attire for that one. So anybody that you know, find, can find that golden nugget on uh, on the WWE Network, uh, I, uh, I I recommend it. But uh, and then the third one, I think I, I mentioned, you know, that I was at the Game Seven of the nineteen ninety seven World Series when the 
the Florida Marlins beat the Cleveland Indians in the bottom of extra innings and kind of what a crazy experience that was. But of course, um, Trebek ultimately, uh, he looks at that list of three things and he, he decides on the spot, uh, what he wants to talk to you about. So, uh, he's, he's, he's the boss. Yeah. And he went with Charbel. Yep. Yep. So I got, I got, I got to give St. Charbel a a shout out on national TV, which I'm pretty sure that's, and then, and then later in the game, when I when I hit the true daily double and doubled my you know ten thousand dollars, then all of a sudden Trebek at the end, the highlight of the show for me, he bellows, and Saint Charbel of Lebanon is smiling down upon you today, and I you know that that just uh, that was pretty that great. Went, that was that was pretty cool. That's one for the books. So couldn't have scripted it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to wrap it up with the most important question. I'm going to ask you. Sure. Mustache, mustache or no mustache? Oh yeah. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with beard. I really like the I really like the tra beard. That was I'm I was I was a big big fan. Unfortunately, Mrs. Trebek apparently was not, so I think she wins. But oh well, well, Charbel, this has been fantastic. I really enjoyed talking to you about your Jeopardy experiences, and congratulations on being being a Jeopardy champion, Brian. Thank you so much. Thanks you for thank you for having me. This is a, a cool program, and I'm. Glad to, glad to be able to join you on it.
chocolate syrup in that Milky Way. So rock it to me, baby, cause we're doing the Thank you.